I'm Dan Schifrin. And I'm Kathy Joller. And this is The Space Between, Dispatches from the Contemporary Jewish Museum. We're here today with Oakland-based artist Merav Tsur, whose video piece, Grafted Arboreus Sabius, or A Failed Attempt to Propagate the Tree of Knowledge, is among the most popular works of art in our exhibition, Do Not Destroy, Trees, Art, and Jewish Thought, an exhibition in the Dorothy Sachs Invitational. Welcome, Merav. Thank you. Can you tell us how you created the Sarah Gray Research Institute or headquarters, <laughs> and how did you create Sarah Gray? Who is she? She is uh, really everybody and nobody. The, the Sarah Gray Research Headquarters um, project kind of slowly materialized. It really started from when I just came to the United States, and every time I wanted to order a pizza or say my name for people at parties. It was just like this ongoing, very long process of saying my name, and then I had to spell it, and some people wanted to write it down and make sure that they saying it right. And then one day, I just said my name was Sarah Gray. It just came out, really, and, um, and nobody asked any questions. And I thought, oh, that's a perfect name I should use all the time. And so I started to work with Sarah Gray. First, she was just a pseudoscientist that was just doing all these experiments completely on her own. People were accusing her for being crazy, but mainly she was just re-examining ideas or spaces that have a very specific, either history or culture, gave them a very specific identity and kind of re-examined what they really meant. For me, she was just a normal person uh, doing what we all do, is trying to define meaning or give meaning to spaces, to places, to objects, uh, to people. Could you give us an example of one of her experiments or something the Institute has done? So before the Institute actually became an Institute, when she was just working on her own, uh, she came to the conclusion that the West Oakland BART station is actually the entrance to paradise. In fact, the Four Corners Paradise, she called it. Not a common perception. <laughs> Not a common perception. I, I live right across the street from the West Oakland BART, and I am very much, I've been living in West Oakland now for probably 15 or 16 years. And so I'm very much a part of the neighborhood. And to me, you know, always when I say I'm from West Oakland, people will identify it as a ghetto or they have already preconceived ideas about uh, the specific neighborhood. So for me to kind of, and especially I'm, I'm, I'm interested in taking spaces like that that either have bad connotations or they're really so mundane that nobody is paying attention to and to bring magic to them. Can you describe this uh, this video about the Tree of Knowledge to us? Uh, so in the video, um, the Sarah Gray Research Headquarters um, uh, decided that they're going to try to propagate the Tree of Knowledge. And so uh, the way that they go about it is that they go into the ten, first 10 pages of in the Internet to try to figure out what was the Tree of Knowledge. And there's in the actual Bible, uh, there's no description of what it was. It just said that it was a tree. And so... The first 10 pages on the internet yield about 17 different species, uh, the different interpretations, like Rabbi so-and-so said it must be wheat, and of course Christianity says it's apple, and um, there's a a 14th century um, mural in France, in a a church in France, where they're actually picking uh, magic mushrooms. Uh, Adam and Eve are standing in front of a tree that has uh, magic mushrooms on it. So knowledge (laughs) comes from altered mental states. So I just picked up uh, all kind of Wikipedia, of course, comes in first, and then there's lots of information in Wikipedia about 
all these different sources. And so the Sarah Gray Research Headquarters decided to take all those 17 species and try to graph them together. And maybe all the ideas that everybody have about what the tree of knowledge might be, if we all put them all together, then the truth will come together or the, the, mm. the real thing is going to actually be created. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was almost like a ridiculous endeavor of, of grafting with real grafting techniques, uh, all these different species like banana or wheat or fig into a, an oak tree, an oak, a rootstock of, a, of an oak tree, which is completely impossible. Tackling the, the project with going and learning how to do grafting for real. So going to YouTube, YouTube tutorials are a big inspiration for me. And in fact, the, the, the video was inspired by video tutorials about how to graft trees. Most of the text in the video actually was taken from grafting tutorials. So the YouTube. technical language of grafting? Yeah. And, but actually the entire words, the entire sentences were taken from other, except that I changed it when, it, you know, instead of an apple, I'll say something else. That's another thing that I do usually. I barely use my own text. I actually go into the internet and just take text from there. You're kind of grafting too. You're like taking Mm -hmm. this from this, you know, banana word and a plum word and then grafting it onto Mm -hmm. like the trunk of your concept. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good uh, analogy. (laughs) Can you tell us how you created the Sarah Gray Research Institute? The idea of actually Uh, forming an institution was very intriguing to me because I thought then she's actually going to work under a more official facade. Not that I really want people to believe those stories more, but at least there's going to be a, a stronger foundation for her research. So then I came out with a, with a name, the Sarah Gray Research Headquarters. And also was, I started to be more interested in involving other people in my work too. I found that working by myself was just not very interesting to me. And starting to get to work with people, especially non-artist people, became extremely important to me. And so my work since the Sarah Gray Research Headquarters was uh, established uh, became less and less focused about necessarily my own ideas, but then bringing people together to kind of into almost like a, a socio-dramatic spaces where we can all work together and create together in this more uh, non-hierarchical space. And I found it much more, I don't know, satisfying. Co-creation has become kind of a big part of your work. When you watch an artist, if you're collaborating with an artist, watching an artist work versus a non-artist, and of course these are artificial terms and just how people self-identify, but Mm -hmm. do you see a difference in their process? Well, what I see is that uh, there's less self-consciousness in the work of non-artists. And I think that there's also a lot of enthusiasm and excitement about giving the possibility of a creative space for them to work in. And that coming back to this, to the original idea that the, we give meaning to things, and so everybody can give meaning to things. So spaces become just a, an excuse for creative endeavors. And so it doesn't really matter who, who is there. Everybody have the same ability to enter that space that is um, promoting artistic uh, interaction and create stuff that is just as interesting. And so I think there's a lot of things that happen that are really unpredictable and beautiful uh, working with non-artists. So I think a lot about Israeli culture. You know, there's this idea of Israel as like a startup nation, and they're constantly kind of creating things and improvising, and there's Mm -hmm. an element of not being afraid to try things and using material at hand. And 
So I've been thinking about that as a definition of Israeli culture, and I just wondered whether there is some aspect of Israeli culture that, um, not just in the kibbutz, which is maybe a little bit more extreme in that way, but there's some aspect of just trying to... Um, it's like a DIY mentality, just mm-hmm. to try to, if you're building the country from scratch. Uh, a lot of times when I go back to Israel, I realize that a lot of my work is very much um, influenced by my upbringing in Israel for many different reasons uh, that we didn't touch on today. And one of them that is really important is that I grew up on the kibbutz uh, social community. And um, one of the tools, child rearing tools that they had was instead, we didn't actually have playgrounds, like the playgrounds that you know. I mean, we maybe had a couple of uh, slides. I don't remember, but not the type of of playgrounds. What what we had is what they called the junkyard. And so uh, every kibbutz, every, actually every children home, so we lived with our, with other children. We didn't live with our families. And every children home right next to it had a junkyard. And the junkyard was our main playground. And what it was, it was just like um, a collection of junk from like really big pieces to even like tractors or uh, parts of um, agricultural machinery to like little home things like computers or shower heads and things like that. As a part of our education, a part of our child rearing was to, we were supposed to go out there every day and, and play. The, all the junk in the beginning was in piles and then we could take out of those piles and create structures. And so the kids, the beginning of the week, uh, we would go out, form groups, and we will um, build structures. Um, and I mentioned it before, there were a little bit about the idea of uh, uh, sociodramatic spaces. So we actually created sociodramatic spaces in which we could interact with each other. So we could build anything from a castle to uh, a kitchen, uh, and then we will reenact uh, we'll give each other um, uh, characters or, or um, um, jobs, and we will interact with that space in a dramatic way. And every week, at the end of the week, we actually had to dismantle the structure and put it back into the pile. And the idea was that we would never get attached to, uh, to, to things. Huh. So it, we, we, would get, we would really uh, feel a space and, and feel connected to a space, but then not feel attached to it. So then by the end of the week, we had to let it go. And then but the, by the beginning of next week, we can start another structure. But it also gave us an opportunity to interact with real, like with adult stuff. So it's not like we were playing like uh, children. Uh, I mean, we were playing like children, but it wasn't like toys that were made out of plastic and stuff. It was just real people stuff. So we can actually be imaginative surrounding ourselves with real people stuff. And that was amazing. Um, um, And I never actually realized how influential it was on me and definitely on my work, because now a lot of the time what I do is I create those spaces from junk. I, I... I make a space that look like a lab, and then I say, okay, now we can play lab here, and you can be um, scientists, and you can do whatever you want as those scientists. You can invent your own uh, experiments, and we can all work in this space together. And when the show is over, we dismantle that space, and it just becomes junk again. So we did a little something different this time and asked you to bring in an object of interest to you. So what did you bring? Israel is very steeped in uh, myth. And there's um, a lot of kind of you talk about the in-between, the space that in-between. Uh, there's a, a lot of space between reality and myth. 
that get confused a lot of times. And in fact, to some degree, I find it fascinating. And I collect a lot of objects that have that aura about them, that they're somewhere between reality and myth. And one of the of those types of objects that I really like are uh, souvenirs, different souvenirs from different countries. But Israel have really amazing souvenirs. This specific souvenir uh, is actually uh, three little bottles that have uh, water from the Jordan, um, stones from Jerusalem, and olive oil from uh, Galilee. And for me, what's so interesting about it is that once you can fill a, a little bottle with water and give it... Um, a title that is a unique title, and suddenly that little bottle of water become extremely uh, sacred in a way. And so the transformation of an object through um, subjective title that was given to it, the water is now from a sacred space, therefore this object is sacred, I I find fascinating. And so how, how humans tend to do that, they um, give meaning to, to certain objects and then the objects become sacred. And we do it uh, with everything all the time. So uh, this is this is a really nice souvenir that I got in Jerusalem. Um, but then also then created a series of little bottles that I filled myself with uh, earth and water and air from various places. And uh, this little um, uh, box has uh, three bottles with uh, earth, water and air from uh, the land of Oz. So, Oz? Uh-huh. Ah. From the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> uh, and then you can practically give those bottles um, uh, sacredness from just by giving them names from various places. Mm. And um, the Wizard uh, of Oz or the Land of Oz was one of my uh, was my favorite um, film when I was growing up. Have you tried to sell those? Yes, it was actually on sale at the MoMA <laughs> last year. At SF uh, MoMA? Yeah. It was uh, a part of um, uh, Stephanie Sajuko. She's another contemporary, amazing contemporary artist from the Bay Area, uh, did uh, an installation called Shadow Shop. And she invited artists to bring uh, little um, objects from their collections or from their uh, studio uh, that would not be very expensive. And she asked me to... Um, to produce something for the exhibition, and so I made about 70 uh, of those little boxes and uh, sold them all. Wow. That's amazing. Can I ask how much you sold them for? $7 each. $7, wow. <laughs> hey, well, thank you, Marab. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're very welcome.